You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode 177. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Joining me today, Nathan Gilmore, associate professor of English at uh, Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Nathan, how's it going? I am doing all right. I uh, just hit print on my fourth final exam set, so I am ready to go into finals week next week. Nice. We have a week after that. Also with us, David Grubbs, Assistant Professor of English at Houston Baptist University, Houston, Texas. David? Hello, hello. Yeah, final exam next week, too. Oh, well, Mm -hmm. you guys will be done before me. Yes, indeed. Well, our topic today is John Barth's 1967 essay, The Literature of exhaustion, and along with it, we'll be talking about his sequel to that essay. I think it's 1981, um, the literature of replenishment, and also what I take to be a representative Barth story called Title, about which more in a moment. Before we get into all of that, I want to talk a little bit about the guy who wrote all of these pieces. David, who is John Barth? How can we keep from confusing him with Karl Barth and Roland <laughs> Barth? And where does the literature of exhaustion fit into the scope of his career? Well, uh, one way that we prevent the confusion is by pronouncing his name rightly. So, yes, Barth. Um, I, I, I don't know how I can help you with, with Roland, except that there's no S. There's an S in that one, right? Yeah, that name is, uh, the name is spelled Barthes. <laughs> <laughs> Barths. Anyway, yeah, so this is just B-A-R-T-H. Um, John Barth is someone I'd never met before. He's a novelist. He's still alive, incidentally. Uh, Born in 1930, a novelist and also a professor of uh, English Lit. Uh, Started his career at Penn State, taught at State University of New York, Buffalo, uh, did a little time at Boston University, and finished up his career at John Hopkins. So uh, a long, illustrious career for uh, John Barth. I was interested in finding out more about his professorial side, given that uh, the stuff that I was finding on the internet was mainly focusing on on him as a novelist. And I found on John Hopkins Magazine in actually spring of this year, there was an art, a, a tribute to John Barth that began with a section of one of his graduate seminar, uh, I guess this is a syllabus, and it's pretty fascinating stuff. Maybe I'll send you the link to this, Michael, and you can pop it in the show notes. Yeah, be, and I've never read anything about him as a professor. Hmm. Well, it, 
the the title of the course is the bare bones of literature in general parenthesis and fiction in particular parenthesis. that sounds like barth the uh, the the book that literature of exhaustion is eventually collected in is called the friday book essays and other nonfiction, or book titles should be straightforward and subtitles avoided <laughs> nice yeah so yeah th- this this looks like the same kind of guy anyway i was i'm always interested when i find out an author is a professor what kind of teacher was this guy anyways I don't think I don't know that we would have necessarily gotten these essays if he hadn't also been a teacher who felt like he had to give some kind of account for himself. But novelists do that occasionally anyway. So also a novelist wrote a number a number of novels um with uh fascinating titles like Giles Goat Boy. Uh, none of which I've ever read, none of which I've encountered, but is frequently considered one of the American uh, sort of typical American postmodern novelists along with Pynchon and guys like that again none of whom I've read so this is a <laughs> this is the kind of introduction that's going to have to be necessarily scrappy because I you know this is my first introduction to this guy sure uh, more details to add, Michael, but I do have a question for you. Uh-huh. Uh, how prominent is Barth among the sort of bad guys that people line up when they talk about the theory wars of the 70s and 80s? I, I think he's in kind of an interesting position, and I imagine we'll talk about that in a, in mm-hmm. a moment with the, with the next question. But the literature of exhaustion is often taken as a death of the author type statement, apparently by yeah, people who have yeah. never read it, because... <laughs> it definitely doesn't say anything like that. No. I think he does occupy a strange middle ground in terms of that, because in a lot of ways he's very conservative in, the th- in terms of things he expects from literature and mm-hmm. in the literature he loves. I mean, Barth is Barth because of The Thousand and One Nights. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think it's possible to conceive of his career without that book and without Chinese stories that have that similar tucked inside other stories quality to them. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I mean, he's for a long time, I think he was considered America's leading postmodern author. And, and so things happen like he has a novel called letters in which all of his previous protagonists correspond with each other. <laughs> yeah. Um, he, he's most famous, I think for a short story called lost in the Funhouse, which is a short story that, is simultaneously tells the story of this kid, he's I think 14, who has a semi-sexual encounter inside a funhouse, but it's interspersed with Barth talking about best practices in terms of writing short fiction. So, yeah, you know, a little bit goes a long way. Um, I've read mostly his first two novels, which don't have that postmodernist quality to them. They're much more existentialist nihilist he's an interesting guy and and he he's for whatever reason not a name that comes up as much as somebody like donald bartholme uh or robert mm-hmm. coover or certainly somebody like david foster wallace mm-hmm. because he he straddles that line between modernism and postmodernism i think by the time 1967 rolls around he's pretty squarely in the postmodernist camp although you'll notice in literature of exhaustion he confesses to not quite knowing what that term means yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, like any good postmodernist would. 
<laughs> exactly. How, how can how can you possibly see that you're sitting in it? I have not ever heard his name as a boogeyman. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, I I don't I don't uh, just just from these 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 couple of essays, um, I wouldn't necessarily associate him with the with the boogeyman. Um, and and we will we will talk about that I'm sure and and this does yeah. lead us into that next question. Yeah. What what broader cultural trends Nathan is he writing this essay in reaction to? Several things immediately occurred to me. One of them is the rise of what I would call the literary left uh, in the post-war academy. Uh, there's a a general questioning of the idea of a. Uh, canon, if you will, although I don't think that term had come into vogue yet. Uh, but there's certainly a question about the prominence of the realist novel, the prominence of straightforward narrative fiction, the prominence of what we think of as sort of conventional, uh, you know, introductory literature survey sorts of texts. Uh, and so what Barth is dealing with in here is a series of attempts uh, to replace the author with happenings. Uh, so you get things like performance art. You get things like, uh, you know, the, the fourth, is it 433? I always forget what the digits are. Yeah, it's 433. Okay, all right, all right. You know, the, the symphony that is four minutes and 33 seconds of nobody playing instruments. Uh, <laughs> you get a rise of experience. Please, Nathan, it is a silent piano sonata, not a symphony. A thousand pardons. <laughs> <laughs> it was so hard to tell. <laughs> yes, yes, I, yes. I, you know, four minutes of then thirty-three seconds of a whole orchestra not doing anything sounds very, very different indeed. Uh, but <laughs> um, so what I would I, what I would call this, uh, and it might just be because it's the end of the semester, which is utterly the wrong time for me to read an essay like this, uh, is the boredom that sets in when the artistic world is prolific in its performers, uh, and that, huh, I guess that, you know, prolific production of performers outstrips the new ideas that are possible. So, you know, what Barth seems to be pointing towards is the fact that a lot of these things uh, are trying to get beyond the author, but they're not replacing it with anything more interesting than an author. And so... When he starts to dig into, you know, what he would regard as the difference between simply an event and art, uh, he identifies something that, like Michael said earlier, is really conservative sounding, uh, given the decades that have passed since this essay, namely virtuosity. Mm. So in other words, you can do experimental things, you can arrange things, you can be self-referential, you can do all of these sorts of things that post-war art does, whether we're talking about Dadaism and visual art or experimental piano sonatas, uh, or whether you're talking about, you know, the uh, post-war fiction, post-James Joyce fiction, so on and so forth. But what Barth seems to want to insist upon uh, is the fact that someone who has, and I don't think he uses this phrase, uh, but I'm going to call it a history with literary texts, we'll still be able to discern a virtuosity in some texts but not others, and it is that virtuosity that makes it art rather than simply an interesting concept. Vision uh, is not enough. That, that's mm-hmm. right, that's right. Good, good, good. 
David, what else is going on in here? Oh, my word. Um, well, I don't want to impinge upon the next question. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but one of the, uh, I, I think you've, you've pretty much tagged the, um, his interest in, but I think also discontent with the, mm-hmm. um, with the avant-garde, um, kind of, kind of approach to art, um, that there's, and, and I, and I would agree that, and which I, which I thought was very interesting, that insistence that there still is some, there, there still is a kind of, a kind of excellence in execution, though what you're executing might be radically unconventional. There still mm-hmm. ought to be a right way to do it. That is artistic. Right, right. It's and, and snobbish. Yeah. Yes. And, <laughs> and, and, I, and I really like the, the phrase he uses to define virtuosity, and I just now found it. I, that's why I was flipping madly through pages there. Virtuosity, he calls, quote, doing things that anyone can dream up and discuss, but almost no one can do, close quote. Mm-hmm. And that, 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 that struck me as true. Mm-hmm. I, I think not, not to get ahead of ourselves again, although, you know, who, who's to say where things begin and end? Uh, the the story we're going to talk about title i think is a is a perfect example of that because that is a story whose premise sounds like a parlor trick but in barth's hands it becomes something very much beyond just a concept Mm -hmm. and certainly lost in the funhouse does that as well and i haven't read letters but uh I, i i can only imagine how much skill it must take to balance the premise of that book. Mm-hmm. But one of the more intriguing ideas to me in this essay is this discussion of the ultimate in aesthetics. David, what does Barth mean by that term, the ultimate? And, and what does he want postmodern, whatever that is, literature to do in relation to it? Um, oh, boy. Oh, I'm going to take my stab at it, and then, and then you, you augment, please. Uh, <laughs> What I was struck by, uh, what what communicated most to me, was once he got once he gets into talking about Borges and Borges' uh, um, fascination with the Baroque and with labyrinths. Then that's when things started to come together for me, at least in, in, in terms of trying to figure out what I think he's saying about exhaustion. That it's not the exhaustion of running out of gas, but it's the exhaustion of attempting all the ways that something can be done so that you can be done with it and move on to whatever the next level up is. Um, and he uses a couple of different uh, a couple of different metaphors. One is um, Menelaus wrestling with uh, the old man of the sea. Um, wrestling with Proteus and not letting go of him until Proteus has shifted through all of his different forms until he's finally exhausted all the different shapes he can have and now finally at the end of it um, Menelaus can get what he wants um, in the same thing in the same way a, a labyrinth and this is uh, what he says that uh, a labyrinth is a place in which ideally all the possibilities of choice are embodied and must be exhausted before one reaches the heart. So, at least in regard to the project of the novel, and in particular the project of, of 
the modern novel, he seems to see that artistic project as having chased down just about all the trails that it can. And the postmodern novelist is sort of there to run down all of them on purpose in order to, I guess, get to the next thing, so to speak. Am I, am I getting near? <laughs> am I getting close? Yeah, I think so. How familiar are you with Borges, David? Um, very, very little. All, all, all I've read leads me to think I should read that, but I've never gotten around to it. He, he is, you know, he's like Umberto Eco. He's a postmodernist who's obsessed with the medieval. Well, and I love Echo, and I love Marquez, and so every, every everybody I like leads me to think that I love to like Borges. <laughs> I just never have gotten around to it. Because I, I, th- I think what he's talking about is is such a good reading of what Borges does that that it's difficult for me to read Borges any other way now. Mm-hmm. Nathan, you're hmm. you're fairly conversant with Borges, isn't that right? No, I'm actually not. <laughs> for some reason, I was thinking you were. Somebody was suggesting we did an episode on that or something, and I thought you had said you'd read him. So no, no. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. So uh, Borges has a story called the Aleph, A L E P H. It's the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Mm-hmm. Um, the Aleph is about a hypothetical point in the universe, which Borges presents with utter banality. It's he says, uh, "I have an Aleph in my basement. It's one of those points of the universe that contains all the other points of the universe." Like it's it's that he's that just completely blasé about it. So he yeah, I got um, one. So so our our protagonist, who is of course Borges himself, openly Borges himself, goes and looks into this Aleph and wants to tell us about it, and he can't because because there's there's no way to talk about something that allows you to see absolutely everything absolutely objectively because you're seeing everything from all sides at once. That's mm-hmm. an expression of absoluteness. Toward the end of the story, though, he says that having read more about it, he's decided that the Aleph he saw on Gray Street is a false Aleph. <laughs> and that is, a, that is a weird semi-comic transcendence of transcendence itself, right? It's putting yourself <laughs> on the outside of something that allows you to see absolutely everything. And so he's, he's pushing you up to the edge of the ultimate and then showing you, oh, actually, there's even more beyond that. And, and Barth points out, and I think he's absolutely right, this is a movement in every single major work by Borges. So, I mean, he talks about the Library of Babel, which is a library that contains not only every book that exists, but every book that might have existed. And Barth has that wonderful line where he says that Borges seems to have read every book, including some that don't actually exist. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think it might have been Danny Anderson that was talking to us about that. Okay, well, okay. that makes sense. I mean, Danny yeah. Danny would, would have something to say about that, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that image, and I want to. Uh, what's the other one? Tlon, or however however you say it. I can never remember. It's the four <laughs> words. Yeah, I I really want to read that one. That one that one just sounds super interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so there's that sense that ultimacy is is gestured toward, but then you have to go beyond it. And he mentions mm-hmm. Beckett in the same context, right? Beckett who said, "I can't go on. I must go on." Beckett's ultimacy is the other direction. Beckett, toward the end of his career, gets to the point where he may as well just publish a blank page. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't do that. But doing that would be the parlor trick. 
right? Yeah. Right, right. What what he does instead is publishes something that suggests silence and therefore goes beyond silence. Or mm-hmm. he doesn't publish. And honestly, that part of the ultimacy idea was the more interesting to me because he talks about Beckett certainly doing that with drama, you know, to where he is eventually saying that, you know, the only drama that's possible now is pantomime. And, you know, Barth suggests that, okay, you can go that far and still be doing art. If you just leave the stage blank, then you're doing a parlor trick. That's right. Uh, You know, so, I mean, it's, you're right, Michael. I mean, it's this notion of creating structure that suggests a void is actually much harder than simply not doing anything. (laughs) I I remember... Um, when I was in high school, I got the brilliant postmodernist idea that I was going to write a poem just by flipping through the channels and writing down the first sentence on each channel. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which, and, and again, you can imagine somebody who had some talent for poetry doing that and making something interesting out of it. But th- the mere idea is not interesting. Mm-hmm. Or the, the idea is interesting as an idea and lousy anytime you try to execute it. Right, right. And that's so much of what gets pl- uh, pawned off as postmodernist art, because the standards change so radically, people take that to mean, well, there aren't any standards, and anything I do can be art if I say it is. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And honestly, this is one of the places where I lack any kind of refinement when you get up to the edge of that, because... Uh, whenever I talk to film people, they can see brilliance in postmodern cinema uh, where I just say, okay, that's a fascinating concept, but please don't make me sit through it for two hours. <laughs> yeah, and I don't, I don't disagree with you there. I, yeah. I, I, I also, I probably have more tools for analysis than you do, but my, yeah. my primary mode of examination is not postmodernist. So I, I have, yeah. I can't read Donald Bartholomew, for example. I've tried and tried and tried and I just don't get it. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't but I, I just think about so conversations. clue what he's up to. Right. Mm-hmm. I just remember conversations I've had with Danny Anderson and also with my brother about different films. And I mean, I, I, I found myself thinking, okay, you know, this conceptually, this is admirable. You know, I really dig the idea of subverting this by this means. But man, when I have to sit through it, it is just agony. Right. <laughs> and and Barth's, Barth's point is you should have to go back to going back to something should lead to further recognition of it. You're like you should understand it better when you go back to it. But mm-hmm. you're only going to want to go back to it if it's good to begin with. Right, right. Yeah. There's a I I don't know if this helps, but in that little article that I I sent you the link to, Michael. Um he has it has Barth's definition of a narrative plot, which actually sounds a lot like what you're talking about. Um, his definition of a plot that he gave in class was the incremental perturbation of an, in, of an unstable homeostatic system and its catastrophic restoration to a complexified equilibrium. <laughs> He's making fun <laughs> of academic prose, right? I mean, because he doesn't write like that yes. at all. Yeah, but when you sit down next to it, I think I see what he means. Like, the in you know the the complexified equilibrium it's not the restoration to the state that it was before it's more complicated as a result of the fact that it's been shaken up mm-hmm. but you know there's something at the other end of it that's not that that wasn't there at the beginning but it is an an equilibrium that's you know 
anyway, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, it, that, that seemed to be kind of like to me. I don't know. <laughs> well, I've assigned, as I said, a Barth short story from the same year that the Literature of Exhaustion was published. Title, I, I cannot imagine that he was not thinking of one when he wrote the other. I don't know which one actually came first. Nathan, to what extent do you see title as an artistic working through of the ideas that he covers in this essay? I do think that I would have understood the essay better if I had read title first. Uh, so in title, what you get is a short story in which the narrative voice is having a conversation with itself and seemingly with the author that is generating the narrative voice, and neither one of them has all that much regard for whoever happens to be reading it. Uh, it's this wonderful expression of a sort of literary boredom that I saw in the essay after I'd read the short story. So, for instance, to give you an example of a few things this this uh, short story does, when you get to a place in the syntax of a sentence in this narrative where you would have a noun, for instance, as the direct object of a transitive verb, uh, instead of actually seeing a noun, you'll just see the word noun. Uh, and it'll say that, you know, as he was leaving, he felt adjective, 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 <laughs> relative clause. Um, and this goes all the way through the story. You know, it, it's not something that, uh, you know, begins halfway the, through the story and becomes more pervasive. It, it, it kind of just erupts in random places throughout this thing. You know the best one? A person who can't verb adverb ought at least to speak correctly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, and so what you're seeing here is, once again, the idea that narrative prose, as we've received it conventionally for the last 400 years, give or take, uh, has exhausted its ability to think new thoughts. Uh, and instead of going in blatantly experimental directions, I'll put it that way, uh, as you might see in a pension novel or something like that, what you get instead is the syntax of a fairly conventional realist fiction story. Uh, but again, instead of nouns and verbs and adjectives and so on and so forth, you get names of figures of speech. And instead of dialogue between characters, you get intermittent interjections by the narrative voice saying, I can't stand writing this stuff. Uh, I am so bored with this story already. Uh, and so it is a story about writing stories, but not in the way that, for instance, uh, you know, Portrait of the Artist Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man is a story about writing stories, but instead it is the act of writing a story enacting the writing of a story. Uh, David, I've, I've twisted myself in a loop here. Can you help me here? <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> um, but one of the things... Hesitant, affirmative response. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, one of the things that, that he does is is just the way that he... Um, and and I did do what you said, what you suggested. The uh, what if I had what it, when you said what if I had read the story before I read the essay? Mm -hmm. I did. Ah, and as and as I was reading the essay, I was like, oh, that's what he's doing, um, because this is a story that at, at every moment, at whatever artistic level, you would have said, okay, and now this is the direction we're going to go in order to push the story beyond the commonplace. But mm -hmm. that's been done, too, and it's already commonplace. 
<laughs> and so it and so every every artifice, every technique, every every possible move that could be made is a move that's already a convention and so can be gestured at with formal language. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's uh it, it's it's kind of fascinating to watch him to watch him to to sort of listen to the narrative voice struggle. Uh not pleasant, but fascinating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it actually reminds me now that I think about it of the uh This is Rain, the graduation address from David Foster Wallace we did a few episodes ago. Mm-hmm. Uh where, you know, he announces fairly early in the graduation address, well this is the part in the graduation address where I hit you with a parable because that's what graduation addresses do yep uh right it's that kind of a move but page after page and paragraph after paragraph yep unrelenting (laughs) i want to point out something just in the broader context of barth's work his first two novels end in this kind of unremitting nihilism Mm -hmm. um his first one is called the floating opera and it's about a guy who decides to kill himself because uh, he can't see a reason to keep living, and then he realizes also there's no intrinsic reason to kill yourself, so you may as well live. <laughs> Title seems to me to be moving in the other direction, just as early as the second paragraph. Everything leads to nothing. Future tense, past tense, present tense. Perfect. Uh-huh, uh-huh, I get it. The final question is, can nothing be made meaningful? So you, you see him like grappling with this nihilist question. Mm-hmm. And not really answering yes, nothing could be made meaningful. But he keeps writing. He can't stop writing. It's this compulsion. Mm-hmm. The story never ends. Mm-hmm. There's no period at the end. I think it's actually probably the weakest of the story's joke. I, th- I think it ends. It, it ends like uh, how in the world will it ever? Yeah, I, th- I think that that's a pretty cheap laugh. But uh, I mean, this, the sense is, despite the encroaching nihilism, he can't. He can't stop this activity. To the point where the activity seems to have taken on its own activity. Mm-hmm. And maybe that leads us to the next question, which is, I, I really think of him as having something akin to a religious consciousness, uh, the way that several other American postmodernist authors do. Uh, Robert Coover, Bartholomew again, David Foster Wallace. I, I'm not sure the religious consciousness is on display in title. But I do think there's a certain human quality to that story that some people don't associate with metafiction. Uh, Nathan, am I just kidding myself? No, I can see this. And and honestly, uh, this is one of the places where I was glad I read the essay first because I was able to identify that this is not merely a conceptual trick. It's not merely, uh, to use your phrase, metafiction. Uh, But it is also a psychodrama uh, played out in a postmodern vocabulary uh, and honestly, that fusion of a strong sense of consciousness that is floating around in this grammatical soup that attempts to deconstruct consciousness is part of what generates the tension that kept me reading to the end. Because honestly, a lot of, I guess, experimental fiction texts that I've read, I've, I've found just utterly agonizing because, uh, I mean, in the same way that I find some postmodern film agonizing uh, because all it is is concept, concept, concept. There is no tension to it. This, I think, maintains that tension because you really do get the sense that there is someone struggling inside of this crossfire uh, and in a, a weird way 
you find yourself rooting for this person to navigate this crossfire, or at least I did. Uh, and so, you know, when it comes to a, a religious consci- conscience, uh, I actually saw some in here simply because uh, this is, I guess, the same sort of experience that I had uh, when I first stumbled onto the notion of total depravity and actually took it seriously, uh, uh, which is to say the last 30 years of my life. Uh, because, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, once you take total depravity seriously, you realize that every time you set your foot on a solid patch to take a stand against total depravity, that patch is also depraved because it's total. Uh, and likewise, in this story... Uh, you think that you're going to subvert the 19th century conventions and all these sorts of things, uh, but then you have to do it with syntax. And so you find yourself subverting every patch of ground you try to plant on to leap off of it. So uh, it, it really is one of those things that, uh, uh, and I'm, I'm going to just utterly steal what David Grubb said about uh, Seventh Seal here and say that it doesn't offer a vision of redemption, but it sure as heck makes you hungry for redemption. Yep. Run with it, David. <laughs> well, I, I, I just agree. Um, <laughs> what, what, well, one of the things, okay. One of, one of the things that's all that, that I find is one of the irritating moves about what's sometimes declared to be postmodern literary endeavor or theory is the emphasis on play mm-hmm. that that defying the convention, breaking the convention, that doing these things that it's that it's playful and freeing and liberating, and to me that's always sounded a little bit smug. I don't know. <laughs> that's just mm-hmm. you know maybe maybe that's just me, but. To me, it's always struck me as smug. There's nothing playful about this story. Mm-hmm. It's it's um, there. There is a legitimate trappedness. It, it's it's the labyrinth of the essay, in which uh, every attempt to find another way out um, is just another path that's that that you've been on before, and you know that that's not the way out. Uh, you really don't find anything playful about it, David. Um, not in the sense of wow, that was fun. Not at all. I mean, I, I, I am this, I am this story feeling as panicked as as the narrator. <laughs> I, I, I don't find the jokes funny. I find the jokes grim. It's gallows humor. I, hmm. I, 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 see. I, I think I think Barth is behind it, laughing at it. Okay. Nathan described it as the the author being separated from the narrator, and I think that's true. I think you, I, I think he's he's driven a wedge there, and the the narrator, I, I think you're certainly right, has no sense of fun about it. But I'm, the story is too funny for me to say there's no play in it. Yeah, I, I think maybe identify. I, I'm I'm ta- I'm thinking more about it, um, the way I identify with the narrator. I'm not even reflecting on what on how on whether or not the author is enjoying it. I'm saying it does. It's not fun for me because I'm not watching. I'm getting pulled into and feeling just as trapped, so to speak. Fair enough. I mean, I, th- I think both of those reactions happen at once. That's mm-hmm. the complexity of the story. Yeah. 
like you you simultaneously feel the pathos of this this character if you can call him that mm-hmm. his position and laugh at the the jokes that are peppered throughout the um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Throughout the story. I also, and and if you guys will entertain a theory for a moment, this is the kind of story, and honestly, these essays strike me as the kind of products of someone who largely teaches 20th century texts to graduate students. Uh, and I mean, part of the reason why I, I tended to read it like David did is that the world that I live in literarily is teaching ancient and medieval texts to 18-year-olds. Uh, and so, <laughs> I mean... It, it is a, a different kind of, of world. It doesn't have this stifling boredom that, you know, certainly title seems to be, you know, swimming in. Uh, and really, I mean, seems to be the premise for the essay, The, the Literature of Exhaustion. Uh, and, and again, I mean, I realize that's not a, a theoretical claim by any means, but it is certainly the impression I came away with is that when I turned from reading these for the podcast, and I started planning my lesson on Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, I realized I had stepped laterally into an entirely different universe, literarily. Mm. And not only because of the text I was preparing, but also because of the life situation to, or the, uh, the form of life, to use Wittgenstein's phrase, that I was going to be operating in. I mean, uh, David, I mean, did you, did you get that, that vibe as well? Uh, I, I was not, I was certainly not conscious of it in that way um but you know again i'm not the kind of person who's going to read a darkly humorous story and enjoy it anyway i don't that's you know the ironic distance all those kinds of all the all those kinds of things that in the later essay are kind of identified with modernism Mm -hmm. are things are things that i actively dislike in a story that's fair enough and so I'm not going to automatically take that pose as the reader, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. I, and I'm sorry, I, I, Michael, that, that was an utter rabbit trail. But it, that, yeah. No, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, I, I've trained myself to enjoy reading like that, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you, but you like Echo. I do. I do like Echo. But I read Echo the way I read this story. I read Foucault's Pendulum, and I don't, I don't laugh at the end. Hmm. <laughs> and I mean, I know what you mean, like the 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 aggressive playfulness. This is why I don't like Penchon. Mm-hmm. I, I think Penchon is bloodless. <laughs> yeah, but I I think the, uh, the the humor and the the nihilism of this story play with each other, and and they they don't exactly get along. It's like they're I don't know they're undermining each other or something. You're you're striving toward to go beyond ultimacy. I don't know. I I, I like that. I li- I like the idea that that they're both there, but they're not working together. It the the you know the nihilism and the funny, the nihilism isn't the joke. If that makes sense. Yeah. No. And and I I think that's certainly true. Yeah. Well, fourteen years after Literature of Exhaustion, um, Barth publishes the Literature of Replenishment. The title alone tells us it's a response to the earlier essay. How does he expand or correct his theoretical vision in this later essay? Well, I don't know. Maybe, well, there are, there are some places where he says uh, something on the lines of, I can't believe I wrote this back then. How silly of me. <laughs> um, it, also, it also helps that in the Friday book you get an introduction to each essay. Right. 
uh, where he he mostly makes fun of himself for saying the things he said. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the the first essay comes out in um, sixty five, seven, sixty somewhere in there. Yeah, six, sixty seven. Yeah, sixty seven. And then uh, literature replenishment comes out in seventy nine. So he's thirty seven years old when he writes the first one. He's forty nine when he writes the second one, and he seems to perceive in himself a a difference in outlook that he associates with age and maturity and where he is at in his career and frankly where the nation is at as well. Um, it's not the National Guard on campus because of Vietnam. It's more the Carter years and, you know, things are... Disco. <laughs> the world running out of gas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, he doesn't reflect as much on those things. He, he, instead, he seems to be seeing it more as as kind of stability, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that he's 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 doing, in, in addition to expanding, correcting his theoretical vision in the later essay, he's also attempting to correct other people's mistaken notions of what his theoretical vision was. Um, you know, you mentioned you mentioned earlier that some people read literature of exhaustion as if it's like the the death knell for the novel or something like that, and or death of the author, so, so some kind of equivalent to that. But um, literature re- replenishment helps to explain how that's that's not what he meant. He didn't he didn't <laughs> mean to say that it's no good writing novels anymore and novels are dead. Let's put a stake in it and write on a, you know God knows what now. I just don't understand how anybody could read literature of exhaustion and come away thinking that's what he was saying. Only if you're only if you conceive of the first half of the twentieth century's project with the novel is the novel, right? If you think that's what a novel is, then yeah, he's 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 saying. Yeah, that that's that's you you've just about chased down all the all the different rabbit runs that can go on. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he also wants to come to grips with you know if he's not entirely sure what postmodernism is in the literature of exhaustion, he's attempting to figure it out in literature of replenishment. And this is you know, frankly the 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 most. Um, the most winsome introduction to postmodernism as a literary endeavor that 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 I've encountered in my reading. Um, mm-hmm. Most of my reading has in in graduate school was confined to the theory side of things, and you know, and and when you start associating it with people like Gabriel Garcia Marquez and and you know, uh, who I have read and Borges, who I've not read but think sounds neat. Um, it just immediately sounds friendlier <laughs> and less threatening. Um, but in terms of in terms of the literature of of, of replenishment, he sees it as uh, oh, how do I how do I even how do I even say it? I'm trying to figure out where I highlighted the juicy quotes, and then it looks as if I forgot to bring my highlighter when I read this one. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, um the replenishment I guess, you know, comes as a result of the exhaustion. The exhaustion is not there because you want to kill what was done before, but because you want to 
um, you want to run through it and get on to the next thing. And there is, there is a kind of positive good in doing that. You're not just holding the, holding your, your pedal, the pedal to the floor until the engine starts to knock and you die on the side of the road. Um, so I, yeah, I, I, I can't say what he's saying. <laughs> you say it. How would you say it, Nathan? <laughs> I, I, I suppose if there's an idea that stuck with me the most from this essay, it's the notion that whatever comes after the modernist novel uh, and whatever good is going to come from what he's calling postmodernism, uh, it's going to have something to do with the energy of what he calls pre-modern, which I, uh, I guess as, as someone who did extensive work in uh, biblical studies, I, I find the 19th century hard to call pre-modern. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, he, he refers to, you know, Dickens and Hugo and Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. Right. Yeah. Uh, and these folks who are writing character-driven, plot-driven prose narratives as the pre-modern moment in the novel. And then, you know, James Joyce uh, and Virginia Woolf and people who are really digging into the structure of consciousness, the structure of discourse, the structure of the structure that makes the pre-modern novel possible as the modernist. He says that that awareness of structure and that energy of the pre-modern probably are going to be part of whatever comes next. Uh, and if they aren't, uh, then he really doesn't know what the novel's going to bring next. But if they are, then there are still some really cool things to be done with the novel uh, and the exhaustion that the modernists were uh, bringing about doesn't necessarily have to be a death of the novel. Uh, it can be a regeneration, if you will, of the novel. Mm -hmm. uh, so as far as postmodern fiction goes, I, you know, uh, when I was reading him, you know, I, I guess partly because I've not read Borges, uh, I, I thought that, you know, the, the conceptual optimism was fun enough, uh, but I didn't have a real good sense of what this might look like on the page. Uh, Michael, I mean, obviously you are much better versed in, you know, things that come after John Milton than Grubbs or I happen to be. So <laughs> what do you think of this essay? Well, I, I think that what he says about transcending the pre-modern modern binary and you right. know postmodernism is all about transcending binaries mm -hmm. i think you see that very well in uh what's called hysterical realism which is a, a brand of postmodernism from i don't know 80s 90s and today i, sh I suppose <laughs> um uh it, which are really kind of neo-dickensian in weird ways so john irving i, I think is kind of the godfather of the the uh hyper hyper realists are did i say hyper or hysterical 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 is what i meant yeah he's the godfather of the hysterical realists then but you, then you get people like jonathan franzen uh zadie smith people like that these huge books just packed with characters packed with plots and the the connections between them are too numerous to really figure out i mean there's something really aggravating about that uh, J uh james wood has a very famous essay where he just lays into hysterical realism. And I, I sympathize with them because I don't love long novels to begin with. And I sure don't love long novels with so many characters. I can't figure them out, <laughs> but you, you can see how that is both a return to quote unquote, pre-modern novels mm -hmm. and a transcending of them. 
because it's not Dickens. It's 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 much weirder and more complicated. But it, it's kind of the skeleton of Dickens with somebody else's flesh on it. Mm-hmm. Well, and now, let me let me ask you this, uh, just as a follow up, Michael, because again, you know, my my background just doesn't go into the 20th century very much at all. I mean, do you think he is basically right, or do you think he's overplaying it when he says that the Dickens and Tolstoy and Victor Hugo style novel uh, really has to be relegated to popular fiction now that there are no more literary possibilities for it? It depends on what you mean by literary. Okay. It depends on it depends on what you think the purpose of the quote unquote literary novel is. Mm-hmm. If it if it's to push the form forward, he's self evidently right. Okay. But if the novel is supposed to build empathy, or if the novel is supposed to um, be some sort of indirect communication of ideas, he may still be right because it may be that as the forms get tired, we can they can no longer instill those things in us. But I don't see necessarily why he would have to be right if those are the purposes of the of the novel. Okay. I don't see how that can be right unless he's assuming that every reader has already read all the other novels. Uh, I don't, it, it does assume, you're right, that it assumes a reader has read a number of other novels. Right, and, and therefore they are familiar with, with it and it is tired. But I just, I just fatiguingly dismissed hysterical realism when the <laughs> truth is I've read four or five books in that genre. Yeah. So I think you can be tired of a genre without having exhausted it right although i mean to play off of what david just said i mean that that returns to my earlier impression that this is definitely the the child of the literary academy mm-hmm. uh it, it is an organism that doesn't have a lifespan of three score and ten but has a <laughs> 400 year lifespan and so has become bored with narrative well, and it, and it also has the kind of, um, it, it, because its literary diet is so intentionally exhaustive, of course it's exhausted. <laughs> um, you know, if, if, the, if the scope of your reading is defined by, is defined by things like comprehensive reading li- comprehensive exam reading lists, you know, I mean, of course you're the one who's going to get bored. You're sated. <laughs> you're Caligula at a feast. You've eaten everything there is to eat in the Roman Empire. Of course you're bored. Well, and I think, uh, to, to go back to James Wood, in, in, uh, in his book How Fiction Works, mm-hmm. he, he defends literary realism mm-hmm. against the charge that it's just a bunch of conventions by pointing out that, yeah, all forms of, all forms of art are just a bunch of conventions. The point is, do the conventions still have power? Mm-hmm. And all conventions get the edges sanded off of them after some period of time. Mm-hmm. And there has to be some sort of revolution. But the idea that the idea that metafiction is somehow... I don't, I don't know. I was going to say truer, but that's not what metafiction is shooting for, is it? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. The, 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 the idea that, that metafiction is somehow capable of expressing more because it recognizes that it's conventions that recognition is itself a convention and bad metafiction is just as bad as bad realism Mm -hmm. well and metafiction's not new either uh, Orlando Furioso is metafiction 
In my dissertation, I argue that metafiction begins with the Iliad. Because, <laughs> yeah. I mean, what is, what is singing me, O Muse, if not uh, a uh, self-conscious notation that you're writing? <laughs> well, I mean, but, you know, th- uh, you know, things like, uh, well, th- things like the, the, the French Holy Grail, um, stories in which Gawain has an amazing adventure and then stops off at the hermit who then explains to him the allegorical significance of the adventure just, he just had. And he's so stoked that the adventure he, he had means so much. I mean, what is that but an exercise in, you know, a very, very kind of self-aware metafiction? Mm-hmm. Anyway, nothing new under the sun, said Solomon very boredly. <laughs> well, let's end uh, with what Gilmore calls a wine and cheese pairing. If you were teaching any or all of these three pieces, what class would you teach them in and what text would you put in conversation with them? David, you go first. Oof. Well, it's very, very unlikely that I would be assigned to teach the class in which these would be read. <laughs> um, but it would... Oh, uh, <laughs> it would probably be... A, it would probably be a class um, in which I'm delving into some magical realism and maybe an echo novel... And I want to, I want some helpful tools for explaining what's going on in, you know, in Borges, Marquez, um, and Echo. I, I, I think that's probably what I, what I would be bringing them in as, um, if I was interested in, in if I was going to, you know, chase fantasy, which I, I sometimes get the, the lovely chance to, to deal with. Um, fantasy novels. If I was interested, if I was ever able to to chase that beyond, you know, the 1930s and just keep going, um, I think this would be useful for for that kind of situation. It's very unlikely that I'm ever going to be teaching any kind of novel class, much less postmodern. <laughs> Nathan. Well, first of all, uh, the course, uh, pretty much the registrar would have to accidentally hit enter and leave the uh, department and course number blank. Uh, but if I were to <laughs> pair this with something, I think it would be very, very cool to read these essays and this story alongside Dante's Paradiso. And here's why, because in these essays and this story, you are hitting the limits of language, but the prior conditions for hitting the limits of language have to do with a literary culture that has become absorbed into the academy and has Mm -hmm. become so self-aware that it experiences exhaustion. With Paradiso, you have Dante making repeated references to the fact that his poetry uh, is itself exhausted in its resources to describe what's going on, but it's because they are situated within a transcendent narrative uh, that renders the syntax of Italian uh, completely inadequate to the reality at hand. So it strikes me as two very different frameworks in which the limits of language mean two very different things. Michael, what do you got? Well, you've really got to read that Borges story, the Aleph. Oh, oh absolutely, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like his answer better, and I'm going to toss in also the Middle English cloud of unknowing. Oh, yeah. Because this is, yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. Well, you, post, 
postmodernism in a certain tenor becomes mystical. Yeah, oh, yeah. Derrida is a mystic in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have taught this, obviously. I've taught all three of them. Um, and I, I taught them not in an English class, but in history of modern Western thought when I was trying to explain what postmodernism looks like in literature. And the other text, if you want to call it that, that I assigned with it is an Ockerville River song called Plus Ones, which I think is is really the perfect example of what Barth is after. Plus Ones is a series of references to pop songs with numbers in the title. 16 <laughs> Candles, 96 Tears, 99 Luft Balloons. But they are referenced by adding one number to each of them. So he says, no one wants to hear about your 97th tier, and so forth. That is something perhaps worth remarking, right? Oh, wouldn't it be funny if somebody did a a pop song and, and added one to all the pop songs, mm-hmm. you know, plus ones also refers to the people who get to go to a concert for free. Ah. But what's amazing about that song is it somehow manages to be both very clever and also emotionally grounded and moving. So it's a, it's an actual song that is also a reference to all these other songs. And the meaning of the song takes on new layers. Once you really know the other songs. I stopped doing it because none of the students in my classes ever knew any of the other songs. <laughs> Not a single one. <laughs> so, so, and obviously, if, if that's the case, it's just a song. It doesn't, it doesn't demonstrate anything. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, the predicament of the aging professor. Intertextual play is only intertextual play if anyone is aware of the other texts. Right, there has to be a field they all stand on. If that field's not the, the listener's mind... Anyway, I hope you enjoyed our episode on John Barth, The Literature of Exhaustion and Related Text. What are we doing next week? Uh, Next week, uh, you might have noticed on the Facebook page, the Christian Humanist Radio Network promised a Christmas present, and next week you will get it. (laughs) Awesome. In the meantime, you can get in touch with us at thechristianhumanist.gmail.com. Our website is christianhumanist.org. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. Amberly Copeland is our intern. For Nathan Gilmore and David Grubbs, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger.